Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 5, Yarmouk. When Abu Bakr died on August 22nd, 634, his designated successor, Umar, became caliph. Unlike Abu Bakr, Umar was widely recognized immediately. Even Ali recognized Umar as caliph. But why would Abu Bakr select Umar as his successor? Well, let's look at Umar's life and characteristics up to this point, like I did with Abu Bakr, and see why Abu Bakr chose him as the next leader. Umar ibn al-Khattab was born in 584 among the Quraysh elite. During the Jahiliya, Umar worked as the Quraysh's ambassador, resolving conflicts between the Quraysh and other tribes. He was probably selected for the position due to his reputation as an orator. However, before he was introduced to Islam, he led a life of recklessness, drinking wine, flirting with women, and engaging in physical combat with his friends. In fact, even when Islam was gaining its first converts, Umar was known to be the most prominent opponent of the new faith. A tall, strong man with a vicious temper, Umar was certainly a man to be feared. At this point, Umar could not have been more different than Abu Bakr. One day, Umar went out, sword in hand, intending to kill Muhammad. Along the way, he met a man from the Banu Zurrah tribe who informed him that neither the Banu Zurrah nor the Banu Hashim would spare Umar's life if he had killed Muhammad. The man added that both Umar's brother-in-law and sister had both converted to Islam. Infuriated, Umar went back to his house, where he found his brother-in-law and sister reading the Quran. Umar demanded to see the book, but at first, his sister refused because he was unclean, and of course, only those with clean hands can touch the Quran. After performing ablution, Umar began reading the holy text, and I guess the portions that he read must have deeply spoke to him, because when he was finished, Umar immediately went to Muhammad's house, and instead of assassinating Muhammad, Umar converted to Islam in Muhammad's presence. Previously, Muhammad had been praying that either Umar or Abu Jahl convert. Now that Umar became the 40th Muslim, Muhammad's prayers were answered. During Abu Bakr's reign, Umar always offered sound advice and enlightening counsel. His strictness, coupled with Abu Bakr's leniency, allowed early Islam to spread its wings. Yet Umar would have to rule alone. Prior to Abu Bakr's death, some prominent Muslims questioned his choice of Umar. Abu Bakr believed that the caliphate would soften Umar, and he would be correct. In one of his many eloquent speeches as caliph, Umar reassured the masses, And now, brethren, I have been nominated to manage your affairs. So be aware, then, that that severity has been weakened, but it will be used only against those who are oppressive and aggressive to Muslims. Yet, to those who seek Islam, safety, and goodwill, I shall be more lenient than each of them is to others. Muhammad gave him the title Al-Faruq, meaning the one who distinguishes between right and wrong. Umar appointed governors based on their piety and aestheticism, and avoided those who merely desired the prestigious posts. In the eyes of Umar, all people in the Rashidun Caliphate were viewed as equal, regardless if they were powerful or weak. It was said that during every night, Umar took it upon himself to patrol the streets in order to fulfill the needs of his subjects. Umar even had his own son, Abdullah, publicly lashed for drinking, which was a punishable offense. Umar was the epitome of justice, and justice would characterize his ten-year reign. Although Umar was the second caliph, he was first in many regards. He was the first caliph to be called Commander of the Faithful. During Abu Bakr's reign, the caliph was called the successor to Muhammad, which would have made Umar the successor to the successor to Muhammad. Needless to say, as caliphs would come and go, this title would lengthen so much that it would have become ridiculous. So Umar adopted the simple yet explicit title, Commander of the Faithful. 
Umar established a public treasury, and he established the Muslim calendar with the Hijra as the starting point. Umar divided the Rashidun Caliphate into provinces and appointed governors to serve in each province. These governors were expected to report to Umar during the annual Hajj. Umar was the first Muslim leader to levy customs duties, organize a census, mint coins, organize a system of irrigation canals, and formally organize provinces, cities, and districts. Umar created jails, police departments, military barracks, and other institutions. He was the first caliph to allow foreign merchants to trade in his country. Umar created a system of guest houses and rest houses on major roads. Umar established schools throughout his realm and allocated salaries to teachers. Umar established the cities of Kufa and Basra, located in Iraq, which, at the time, acted as frontline bases from which to launch future armies. These two cities would play major roles in Islamic history. Umar standardized the taxation system as well. Three main taxes were collected, the Quraj, or land tax, levied on landowners, the Jizya, which was levied on non-Muslims in exchange for military protection, and the mandatory Zakat, or charity tax. The Jizya was set up so that higher income people were expected to pay more. Of course, tax collection emphasized the need to register account books and decide how those taxes would be spent. While Abu Bakr paid everyone equally, Umar changed the caliphate's policies so that individuals who embraced Islam earlier would receive more from the state. He was also the first ruler in history to separate the judiciary from the executive. Umar set up a judicial system under which justice was administered according to the rules of Islam. Umar appointed qadis, or judges, to administer justice at all levels. Qadis were selected based on their integrity and knowledge of Islamic law. All judges were required to abide by a specific constitution while settling disputes. Even non-Muslims benefited from Umar's administration. Umar issued a ruling that Arabs, including both Muslims and non-Muslims, could not be made slaves. He allocated stipends for the poor among the Jews and Christians. Obviously, Umar accomplished a lot during his reign, and there were even more accomplishments attributed to Umar that I included here. But after becoming caliph, Umar's very first act was to demote Khalid ibn al-Walid and appoint Abu Ubaidah as commander of the caliphate's armies in Syria. Now I know what you're thinking. Why would Umar demote the man who has won every single battle he commanded? Well, it was common knowledge among the Muslim community that Umar and Khalid didn't have the best relationship. Umar's explanation was that Khalid squandered captured wealth on poets and warriors. Umar argued that this money should have been used to help the poor instead. In addition, Umar wanted to show that it was Allah alone that granted victories. Although Khalid would operate under Abu Ubaidah, he constantly gave Abu Ubaidah much-needed advice. Umar confirmed the various corps commanders in the roles allotted to them by Abu Bakr, but under Umar's leadership, the pace of operations slowed. While Khalid moved aggressively and swiftly, the more cautious Abu Ubaidah moved slowly and steadily. Umar took a more active role in managing the conquests by giving specific objectives for battles and troop movements. Umar also sent spies to monitor his generals. With these new arrangements, the conquest of Syria continued, though at a slower pace than before. By now, Heraclius had assembled a new army at Baysan, numbering 80,000 men, according to intelligence shared with the Muslims by local agents. Heraclius decided on a strategy of avoiding direct confrontation with the Muslims, Instead, the Byzantines planned to move eastward and cut Muslim communications with Arabia. The Muslims moved north, with the exception of Yazid's corps, which formed a garrison in Damascus. In January 635, the Byzantine garrison at Fal, hearing of the Muslim advance, retreated back to Baysan.
Immediately afterwards, they dammed the river a few miles south of the Baisan Fall Line, flooding the area around the river. The Muslims attempted a crossing, but their advance guard became stuck in the mud, so the Muslims retreated back to Fall, where they waited for a week. After sunset on January 23, 635, the Byzantines formed up west of the river and began advancing on Fall, hoping to catch the Muslims off guard. However, Shurabil had posted scouts to monitor Byzantine troop movements, and by the time the Byzantines neared Fall, the Muslims fully deployed their army. The two armies fought all night and during the following day. The Muslims were constantly on the defensive, but they resisted all Byzantine attempts to break through. However, as night fell, the Byzantines attempted to use the cover of darkness to retreat towards Baisan. But this was the moment the Muslims were waiting for. Shurabil attacked the Byzantines while they were stuck in the marsh with devastating results. About 10,000 Byzantines were slain during the Battle of Fall. With the defeat of the main Byzantine army, the Muslims saw no need to concentrate anymore, so they split up. Shurabil and Amr would later capture the fortress of Baisan, while Abu Ubaidah and Khalid moved further north. Soon, most of the cities of the Levant would fall to the Muslims. Amr captured Nablus, Amawas, Gaza, and Yubna, Shurabil captured Acre and Tyre, and Yazid captured the ports of Sidon, Arca, Byblos, and Beirut. By the end of 635, with the exception of Jerusalem and Caesarea, all of the Levant belonged to the Rashidun Caliphate. In early March 635, Khalid and Abu Ubaidah moved further north. They met another Byzantine army at Marjurum. Unbeknownst to the Muslims, Heraclius, having learned that the Muslims had split up, decided to take Damascus quickly. Heraclius sent the general Theodorus with the intention of taking Damascus, but the Muslims found Theodorus at Marjurum first. A second Byzantine commander, Shans, arrived from Emesa with more troops. For the rest of the day, the Muslim and Byzantine armies merely stared at each other, waiting for their opponents to make the first move. Then, under the cover of nightfall, Theodorus successfully headed around the Muslim army undetected and headed for the weak Muslim garrison at Damascus. Yazid was forced to hold his own until mid-morning during the next day, when Khalid's mobile guard attacked the Byzantine rear and tore it to pieces, and Theodorus himself was killed. As it turned out, Khalid correctly guessed Theodorus' strategy, and he left Abu Ubaidah to relieve Yazid. Even better, Abu Ubaidah defeated and killed Shans at the Battle of Marjurum, though the bulk of the Byzantine army managed to retreat to Emesa. Abu Ubaidah and Khalid together laid siege to Emesa, but after a few days, a truce was agreed upon. Emesa would pay a hefty tribute, and in return, the Muslims would not attack for a year. However, if Byzantine reinforcements arrived in Emesa, the truce would be considered null and void. The gates of Emesa opened in order for the truce to be signed. Emesa's inhabitants were astonished to discover that the Muslims paid for whatever they took. The people of nearby Kinisarin, having learned of the peaceful way Emesa avoided battle with the Muslims, decided to do the same. Abu Ubaidah was now free to move into northern Syria. He dispatched raiding parties that reached as far north as Aleppo. Around early November 635, Abu Ubaidah's army moved further north, and the cities they encountered surrendered peacefully. However, the Muslims learned that Byzantine reinforcements were being dispatched to Kinisarin and Emesa, forcing the Muslims to capture these locations by force. Abu Ubaidah moved to besiege Emesa first. The Muslims had 15,000 men, while the Emesans had about 8,000 men. By now, it was November or December, and the Muslims suffered from the cold that was new to them, but not as much as the defenders anticipated. By March 636, the temperature was rising, and the Muslims could receive reinforcements. 
The governor of Emesa, Harbees, decided on an all-or-nothing sally. He led 5,000 men outside the city, but was driven back in heavy fighting. The following morning, the Byzantines saw the Muslims pack up their things and retreat southwards. Surely now, Harbees thought, was the best time to attack. But little did Harbees know that the Muslim retreat was actually just a deception engineered by Khalid. As Harbees was about to pounce on his retreating enemy, the Muslims turned around and struck. A group of 500 horsemen galloped back to Emesa in order to ensure that no Byzantines made it back to the fort. The Muslims then returned to Emesa to continue the siege, but the defenders saw no point in fighting and surrendered in mid-March 636. The Muslims went northward a second time, but again, they were forced to turn back. Having captured a Byzantine convoy, they received grim news from their prisoners. By now, the Byzantine situation was as precarious as that in the early 620s, when the Byzantines were at their lowest point during the Byzantine-Sassanid War of 602 to 628. In 635, while the Muslims were besieging Emesa, Heraclius organized an army more massive than any of the previous armies he assembled. By May 636, 150,000 men, according to Muslim sources, from all corners of the Byzantine Empire had gathered in the region around Antioch. Special church services were held all across the empire in order to ensure victory for the imperial army. Not only were ordinary soldiers present, but nobles and dignitaries of the church. Heraclius's army was extremely diverse, consisting of Slavs, Franks, Greeks, Georgians, Armenians, and Christian Arabs. This massive force was organized into five armies. The commanders were Mahan, king of Armenia, Ganatir, a Slavic prince, Gregory, Diurjan, and Jabla ibn al-Aham, the last king of the Ghassanids. Mahan was appointed commander-in-chief of the whole army. At this time, the Muslims were scattered. Abu Ubaidah and Khalid were in Emesa, Amr was in Palestine, Shurba was in Jordan, and Yazid was besieging Caesarea. The Muslim positions were extremely dangerous, as any individual corps could have been attacked by the vastly superior Byzantine force. Based on Heraclius's orders, he must have been aware of this strategy. By the middle of June 636, 40,000 troops were sent to Caesarea in order to tie down Yazid, while each of the five armies moved independently in order to encircle Khalid and Abu Ubaidah at Emesa. Even Khalid realized that the odds were against him and had Abu Ubaidah wisely retreat from Emesa before the Byzantines arrived. Khalid advised Abu Ubaidah to order all Muslim armies to abandon north and central Syria and retreat to Jabia, located at the junction of the routes between Syria, Jordan, and Palestine. The inhabitants of previously Muslim-occupied cities had agreed to pay jizya in exchange for Muslim protection. Now that the Muslims were unable to protect them, all corps commanders returned the jizya to those who paid it before leaving. In mid-July 636, the forward elements of the Byzantine army made contact with Muslim screens, making a decisive battle inevitable. Abu Ubaidah held a war council to decide what to do. While Abu Ubaidah received conflicting opinions, the general mood of the council was to fight. But it would have been unwise to do so at their current positions at Jabia, as the forces at Caesarea could have attacked the Muslim rear while they faced the main army from the north. The Muslims withdrew to the plain of Yarmouk, a few miles to the southeast, while Khalid and 4,000 mobile guard horsemen clashed and defeated the advanced elements of the Byzantine army, buying the Muslims more time. The Byzantines set up their camps north of the Muslim camps, but Mahan received instructions from Heraclius to explore all avenues of peaceful negotiations. Mahan was prepared to offer generous terms to the Muslims if they agreed to return to Arabia and never come back. Unfortunately, Abu Ubaidah rejected Mahan's terms, 
and over the course of the next month, negotiations broke down. The battlefield consisted of the plain of Yarmouk between the Byzantine and Muslim camps. Located in the west, behind the Byzantine camp, was the Wadi Urakad ravine, while the Yarmouk river was located south of a Muslim camp. Both features had banks 1,000 feet high, meaning that crossing them was perilous. Located to the east was the Hill of Jamua, or Hill of Gathering, 300 feet high, which would have provided a tactical advantage. Located to the west, close to the Byzantine lines, was the Nar al-Alan stream, which flowed southwards to join the Yarmouk River. All this meant that flanking could only be accomplished in one direction, away from the Yarmouk River. The battlefield allowed infantry and cavalry to move with ease. Mahan deployed the Byzantine army in four sections. The Byzantine right was commanded by Gregory, and its left was commanded by Kanatir. The two sections in the center consisted of the army of Dairjan and the Armenian army of Mahan, though both were commanded by Dairjan. Mahan deployed the army of Jabla all across the Byzantine front so that it could act as a screen. The Byzantine front was 12 miles long. Khalid convinced Abu Ubaidah to let him be the commander during the duration of the battle, and he issued orders for deployment. The Muslim army mimicked the formation of the Byzantine army. The Muslim left was commanded by Yazid, and the Muslim right was commanded by Amr. The center left was commanded by Abu Ubaidah, and the center right was commanded by Shurabil. Behind the Muslim center was Khalid and the mobile guard, which would act as a reserve. Though the Muslim army had approximately the same width as the Byzantine army, it was thinner, since the Muslims had less men. The battle began in mid-August 636, as soon as the Muslims concluded their morning prayers. Both armies lined up for battle less than a mile apart. Then a Byzantine general named George emerged from the Byzantine center and asked for Khalid. Khalid assumed that George was challenging him to a duel and rode towards George, but to the astonishment of both armies, George announced his intention to convert to Islam and join the Muslim ranks. Unfortunately, George would die alongside the Muslims hours later. Next came a series of duels, in which, as expected, the Muslims won most of them. By midday, Mahan had enough. He ordered one-third of his infantry from each of his four armies forward in order to test the Muslim strength. Mahan's charge was not a determined one, and casualties were light that day, though there were more Byzantine than Muslim casualties. The two armies spent the night in peace, with the exception of a few skirmishes between patrols, as both sides entered the battlefield to pick up their dead. Before dawn on the second day, Mahan held a council of war in order to determine the Byzantine strategy. It was decided that the Byzantines would attack first thing in the morning, and with more force, in an attempt to catch the Muslims off guard. The two central armies would pin the Muslims in place, while the two flanking armies would either drive the Muslims off the battlefield or push them towards the center. During the previous night, Khalid ordered outposts to be placed in front of the Muslim army, and these outposts bogged down the Byzantines long enough to allow the Muslims to don their armor and weapons. On the Muslim right, the army of Kanatir attacked the core of Amr ibn al-As. While the Muslims repelled Kanatir's first two attacks, Kanatir's third attack broke the Muslim resistance, and the majority of Amr's corps retreated back to their camp. Amr ordered his 2,000 cavalry forward, which checked the Byzantine advance for some time, but it was not enough. As the Byzantines neared the Muslim camp, they found a line of Muslim women armed with tent poles and stones. They joined the Muslim army in repelling the Byzantines, allowing Amr to launch a counterattack. While the Muslim right was falling back, the Muslim left was in crisis too. Here, the army of Gregory attacked the core of Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan, and here too, Yazid uses cavalry to delay the Byzantine advance. 
This time, however, when the Muslims retreated to their camps, they were chastised by the women. The women pressured the core of Yazid to return to the battle, and even some of the women joined the fighting. Up until now, Khalid held back his reserve, only interviewing if it was absolutely necessary, and now was absolutely necessary. Khalid's reserve attacked Kanatir, allowing Amr to restore the Muslim positions on the right. Then Khalid turned to the left. One part of the reserve, commanded by Durar, attacked Dairshan, while the other part, commanded by Khalid, attacked Gregory. This allowed the Muslims to restore their positions on the left, and even better, as Dairjan was retreating, Durar killed him. As pressure mounted, Durar was forced to turn back. Sunset forced both armies to break contact. During the second day, the Muslims faced a critical situation, yet Khalid's counterattacks boosted the Muslims' morale. The Byzantines, in contrast, were demoralized by the loss of Dairjan. Mahan appointed a general named Karin to command Dairjan's section, and he transferred the command of the Armenians to Kanatir. Such arrangements were necessary, because on the third day, Mahan targeted the Muslim right and right center. Kanatir struck hard at the core of Amr and Shurabil, and though his initial attack was repulsed, his overwhelming numbers allowed the Byzantines to break through in several places. Amr's corps fled back to its camp, while the right part of Shurabil's corps was pushed back. Again came the Muslim woman, wielding stones and tent poles, and again, the woman shamed the men into returning to the battlefield. Khalid committed his reserve against Kanatir, and a combined counterattack by Khalid, Shurabil, and Amr pushed Kanatir back. The Muslims sustained a significant number of casualties, though it was less than that of the Byzantines. The Byzantines were now getting desperate. All of their attacks had failed, and they were in no better situation than at the start of the battle. Both sides understood that the fourth day was going to be decisive. The Byzantines were now planning their greatest effort to shatter the Muslim army. By now, the Muslim archers were significantly depleted, so Khalid reallocated 500 of them to each corps. Mahan repeated his maneuvers on day three by launching an attack on the Muslim right. Once the Muslim right was driven back and the Muslim reserve was committed, Mahan would strike at the Muslim left with the rest of his army. Amr and Shurabil were attacked again, though this time, Amr's corps stood its ground, while Shurabil's corps was pushed back to its camp. Kanatir's Armenians, which were fighting Shurabil's corps, were joined by Jabla's Christian Arabs. Normally, Khalid would commit his reserve to whatever corps was experiencing the most trouble, but he now feared that a general attack along the entire front would break through the Muslim lines in multiple places. Confident that Amr would hold the line, Khalid divided his reserves into halves, and both Havs and Sherbil's corps launched a three-pronged attack against the flanks of the Armenians and Christian Arabs, inflicting many casualties. By the afternoon, the Armenians and Christian Arabs were pushed back to their original position, and as they did so, Amr was able to dislodge the Slavs on the Muslim right. Another fierce battle was raging on the Muslim left, where the Byzantines opened a barrage of archery. Byzantine marksmanship was so accurate that many Muslims, including Abu Sufyan, lost eyes. Because of this event, the fourth day of the Battle of Yarmouk would be remembered as the Day of Lost Eyes. Mahan realized his army's progress against the Muslim left and decided to press his advantage. Gregory and Karin marched forward and the Muslims were pushed back. The fearless Ikramah refused to retreat and made an oath with his men not to surrender their position. Of the 400 men who swore this oath, all of them were either mortally or seriously wounded. The Muslim women on the left, most of them wielding swords, joined the fight and forced the Byzantines to retreat. By dusk, the combat was over. The Byzantines had come so close to achieving victory. Early on the fifth day of battle, 
Both sides did nothing. Then, an emissary of Mahan offered a truce for the next few days in order to restart negotiations. Abu Ubaidah nearly accepted the proposal, but Khalid convinced him to reject it. Khalid realized that the Byzantines were unwilling to do battle and reorganized the army. All the cavalry regiments were grouped together into an 8,000 horsemen unit. On the beginning of the sixth day, Gregory rode forward, asking to duel with, quote, none but the commander of the Arabs, end quote, which meant Abu Ubaidah. Abu Ubaidah successfully killed the general. Then, Khalid rode to join his cavalry unit, which he placed behind Amr's corps. The Muslim center and left attacked the Byzantines along their front, but did not press their attacks. Then, while Amr on the Muslim right engaged the Slavs, Khalid and the Muslim cavalry struck against the Byzantine left flank, and the Byzantine left crumbled. Amr moved his corps forward and attacked the now-exposed flank of the Armenians. Meanwhile, Khalid's cavalry attacked the Byzantine cavalry and drove it from the battlefield. Mahan concentrated the remainder of his cavalry in an attempt to counterattack, but it was too late. It was attacked from the flank in front by Khalid's cavalry and forced to flee north, taking Mahan with it. Khalid then charged at the Armenians from their rear. The Armenians, facing a three-pronged attack, disintegrated. The Armenians that survived fled southwest. As the Armenians collapsed, the confused Slavs under Kanatir fled towards the Wadi Urakad ravine. The Byzantines knew that their only hope of escape was a road that crossed the ravine. But they would be in for a nasty shock. During the previous night, Khalid sent Durar with 500 mobile guard horsemen to block that road. The Byzantines realized that their only means of escape was cut off. Durar could not be dislodged, as the narrowness of the crossing left little room for maneuver, Surrounded by the advancing Muslims and the Wadi Urakad ravine, the remaining Byzantines were either slain by the Muslims or flung themselves into the ravine. The Battle of Yarmouk, Khalid ibn al-Walid's masterpiece, reached its bloody conclusion by nightfall. The next day, Khalid set off with the Muslim cavalry along the road to Damascus, catching up with Mahan's cavalry and decisively defeated it. Mahan was slain by a Muslim horseman, and the remaining Byzantine cavalry split up and fled north. The Battle of Yarmouk was perhaps the most decisive defeat suffered by the Byzantine Empire until, I guess, the fall of Constantinople in 1453. 4,000 Muslims were killed, while, according to Muslim sources, the amount of Byzantines killed ranged from 70,000 to 120,000. The following month, Heraclius fled from Antioch for his safety. As he crossed the border between Syria and Anatolia, he allegedly said, Farewell, Syria. I do not think we shall meet again. Indeed, the Byzantines would never own these lands again. Next time, we'll see the completion of the Muslim conquest in Syria, the decisive clashes with the Sassanids, and the capture of perhaps the greatest prize of all, Jerusalem. Jerusalem.